So if you would, uh, I don't, maybe you have to close your eyes. If you have a good imagination, then uh, keep your eyes open. But I want you to imagine, if you would, that uh, you are in a courtroom. And in this courtroom, there's a judge, uh, there's a prosecuting attorney, and there's a defendant. You have a judge, you have a prosecuting attorney, and you have a defendant. Now, the judge seated is the most righteous judge in all of history. And he's righteous because we can trust that his judgment is always good and is always true. He's always fair in what he decides. The defendant is standing before the judge and he's covered from head to foot in the crime that he just committed. It's as if he stands before God after just committing a murder, covered in blood, with a smoking gun at his right hand. It's obvious that this man has done something really, really terrible. And then standing to his right, we have the greatest accuser who's ever lived. The most intelligent prosecutor that ever was. Now, from just hearing that scenario, I think we all can agree that whatever happens next, the defendant must be found guilty. That whatever happens, the defendant must be found guilty of all charges. The righteous judge will do right, and he will send this man to jail for a very, very long time. But what if something happens that turns the trial completely upside down? What if things don't go the way that you and I think they would go? What if the man who is covered in the crime that he just committed is declared innocent of all charges? What if at the trial, the prosecutor who thought that his case would be a slam dunk in his favor, it takes a sharp left and catches him completely off guard. What if that actually happened? Well, to see what happens in this story, I want us to turn to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. And if you would, please stand when you are there. Zechariah chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament. It is before Haggai and a little before Matthew. So if you go to the New Testament and just flip over a few pages, you'll find it. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And verses 1 through 5 will be our text for this morning. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 
But for the context, I think I'm just going to read the entire thing. Zechariah chapter 3 says this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe thee with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Saints, you may be seated. We'll stop there. This morning, I just have two points that will help us consider these first marvelous verses, five verses. The first point, the guilty sinner. And the second point, the innocent substitute. Number one, the guilty sinner. And number two, the innocent substitute. Let's consider the first point, and that is the guilty sinner. The guilty sinner. Now, I want you to keep that scenario that I spoke of in your minds as we continue and go on through this passage. But again, if you would look, verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah at this moment is having a vision. Uh, This is the fourth vision in Zechariah's dreams. And the Lord takes Zechariah in this vision to what would be a courtroom. There's a scene going on here. And as we open this vision of Zechariah, we are immediately introduced to this man named Joshua. Joshua. Now, who is this man, Joshua? Some have believed that Joshua is just some figure in Zechariah's vision with no background or origin. But if we read other passages of Scripture, we see that Joshua is an historical person. We see him mentioned in Haggai chapter 1. He's mentioned in Ezra chapter 5, and later he's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 6. So this man uh, in Zechariah's time, or rather in his vision, is a real person. But also, he's a high priest. Joshua is the high priest of Israel. And as we consider this man Joshua, there's three things in this point that I want us to look at. There's three things in our text that teach us about this man, Joshua. So number one, Joshua is a federal head. Joshua is a federal head. And what that simply means, friends, is this, that Joshua stands on the behalf of others. Just as the president stands on the behalf of us, just as when you work at Walmart or whatever, you stand on the behalf of the corporation of Walmart. Joshua stands on the behalf of a certain people group. 
Joshua doesn't just represent himself, but he's a corporate person. He represents others. He's like Adam, who was the father of the human race, who represents in his person all of humanity. And the reason why Joshua is a representative person can be attributed to the fact that he's a high priest. The high priests were corporate individuals. We read in verse 1 that Joshua is a high priest. And the high priest in the Old Covenant represented others. They were mediators between God and man. They stood before God on the behalf of the people. In the Old Covenant, only those who held the priestly vocation could enter into the holiest parts of the tabernacle. And it's in the tabernacle where God made his presence manifest. But also in the tabernacle, the priests would take the sacrifices from the people to God. For he was the only one fitted who can be in the presence of God. They stood on the behalf of the people before God. But we have to ask another question. Who is Joshua standing on the behalf of? Who does Joshua represent? We know that he's a representative person. So who does he represent? Well, the answer is twofold. The first people group that Joshua represents is the nation of Israel. Because he's a high priest. He represents Israel. He's Israel's high priest. And we see that in verse 2. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. The Lord equates Jerusalem with Joshua. So Joshua is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is Joshua. Whatever Joshua does, Israel does. And whatever Joshua doesn't do, Israel doesn't do. Joshua represents Jerusalem because he's their high priest. He represents God's people. But there's also another group in which Joshua represents. He doesn't just represent Israel, but Joshua also represents you and I. Joshua represents us in this story. In our text, Joshua stands in our place. He stands before the Lord, before or on our account. And as we move through our text this morning, I want you to do one thing. I want you to put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Whatever happens to Joshua happens to you. And whatever doesn't happen to Joshua doesn't happen to you. Because Joshua represents you. You are Joshua, and Joshua is you. The second thing we learn about this man, Joshua, and here's where the story starts to get a little darker. The second thing we learn about this man, Joshua, is that he's soiled. That he's soiled. In other words, he's dirty. He's rotten. He's filthy. He's unclean. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 3 if you would. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. Joshua stands before the angel, which we know as the Lord, clothed in garments, in filthy garments. Now, when we see that word filthy, 
We aren't to think that Joshua is wearing a garment and just has a slight smudge of stain on it. There's a stain here or there. Or that Joshua is just a little dirty. But when we read that word filthy, it's to mean that Joshua is covered from head to foot in human waste. In human waste, Joshua is covered in. Joshua is standing before the Lord covered in vomit. He's standing before the Lord covered in human excrement. Whatever filthy stuff you can imagine, Joshua is covered in it. Now, this might not seem shocking to you. This might seem of no big deal to you, but if you are an Israelite reading this at this time, you would be utterly shocked. A high priest standing before God filthy? That doesn't make any sense. The thought of a high priest having any stain on his garment would not only be bizarre, but also shocking. Because no high priest whatsoever should be dirty. On the day of atonement, the priests would bathe themselves seven times. They would prepare themselves for the Lord. And after they bathed themselves, they would dress themselves in pure white, clean linen. A beautiful gold coat would cover them and a turban would be placed upon their head, a white turban. And across their turban, there would be a gold plate that said, holy to the Lord. The priests were the ones who were to be the most clean. They were to be the ones who were the most holy. They were to be the ones who were the most pure. But here in this text, This high priest stands before the Lord covered in filth. How has this happened? And saints, is this not, not just a vivid picture, but also a perfect picture of our standing before the Lord? When Adam sinned, he fell from the mountaintop of innocence down to the abyss of sin. When Adam sinned, he didn't just sin for himself, but he plunged us down those same miseries with him. Because of Adam's sin, not only are we dead spiritually, but in God's eyes, we are utterly filthy. We are dirty before the Lord. And that dirt goes far beyond what's in our outer garments touches down to the very soul and marrow of who we are. The stench of sin covers our entire being. And it's woven into the very fabric of who we are. Saints, it's almost as if being human is to be a sinner. Because no one is born with their nature upright. No one is born righteous, no, not one. We all are born bent toward evil. Our natures are corrupted. We all, like David, echo the words of David that in sin our mother 
birthed us. We stand before God clothed in sin, saints. And friends, the sad reality of sin is this. You might be the best dressed in your class. You might have the richest and finest of clothes. You might wear the most pleasing of cologne and aroma. Your haircut might be perfect and your makeup might be immaculate. But friends, in reality, how can a dead corpse make itself presentable? In reality, what can a dead person do? As R.C. Sproul would say, stink. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to make yourself presentable before the Lord. There's no amount of prayers you can pray. There's no amount of church services you can attend. There's no amount of money you can tithe that can take away your filthy garments. Absolutely nothing. And friends, those of you, and we all have done it, and we all have tried it, those of you who try to cover your nakedness and shame by your good works, it's almost as if you're trying to cover your nakedness and shame with spider webs. God can see right through it. It just doesn't work. Do you feel the weight of your sin? There's absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself clean and holy. And as Joshua stood before the Lord with filthy garments, those outside of Christ stand before the Lord in the same filth. Hear me now, if you are not in Christ, if you are not saved in Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to Christ, you stand before the Lord in a greater filth than Joshua stood before the Lord. And as the dark cloud over Joshua couldn't get any darker, as if standing before the Lord, standing before the righteous judge of all the earth couldn't get any worse. Joshua stands before the Lord accused. <laughs> as, as if him being dirty wasn't enough. He's guilty of all charges. And that's the third thing we learn about this man, Joshua. Joshua is accused. He's a federal head. He's dirty and soiled. And now he's accused. Joshua stands before the judge of all the earth, guilty as charged. Joshua knows he's guilty. Again, it's as if he just committed a murder and all of the blood from his victim is splattered on him. It's covering his face. It's covering his head. It's covering his feet. On his left hand, he holds a knife. On his right hand, he holds a smoking gun. He's guilty of all charges and he knows he's guilty. But to add to the darkness of this scene, there's one who stands to his right. That's not making things any better. As if Joshua's situation couldn't get any more dark. Standing next to Joshua is the greatest accuser in all of history. 
Standing next to Joshua is the father of lies. Standing next to Joshua, covered in filth, is Satan. Satan stands next to Joshua and the Lord, eagerly, ready to present his case. I would like to think at this time, reading this, that Satan is probably fidgeting around and he can't keep still. It's as if saliva was coming from his mouth, that he's just ready to prowl upon Joshua. Because he knows that this is a case that Joshua in no way, shape, or form can win. There is nothing that Joshua can do. There is no evidence that Joshua can bring up that would declare him, declare him innocent. There is no outside evidence that Satan needs to bring to the table. For Joshua is covered from head to foot in it. Joshua is wearing the evidence. Friends, it's been said before from me and Pastor Antonio to don't look for yourself first in the story, but I have to tell you this. You are Joshua in this story. You are Joshua and Joshua is you. And and in Adam, this is our story. In Adam, this is your past if you are saved by grace in Christ alone. This is your history from the moment of conception to when Christ saved you by his grace. This is who you are. We are all filthy sinners that stand guilty of all charges. From count one to count affinity. Every single count will stick. There is no argument from us that could be made, that can be made. But sin is attached to every single fiber of who we are. And left to ourselves, saints, we have absolutely no hope. You stand in Adam like Joshua stood before the Lord, covered in filth, covered in shame, covered in your sin. And there was one beside you who was eagerly ready to tell the Lord how filthy and dirty you truly are. Joshua has no hope. He has nowhere to turn. He has nowhere to hide. There's no lifeline for him there's nothing for him to go where he can go. But it's in times like this, when there is no hope, when we are in our darkest hour, as Micah said, the Lord will be a light for us. This leads to our last point, which is the innocent substitute. We have the guilty sinner and now we have the innocent substitute. There was no reason why Joshua should not be declared guilty of all charges. I think if all of us took a vote, we would all say that Joshua is guilty. He stands before God covered in filth. And standing next to him, Satan is ready to bring his indictment upon Joshua's head. 
Satan is so ready to unleash every single thing he has to say about Joshua. There is not one charge, not one thing that Satan can bring up that will not stick. Every single thing that Satan has brought to the table will land. Everything that Satan brings to the table will count against Joshua. And if we can put ourselves back into Joshua's shoes, I like to think that right about the time Satan is going to present his case against Joshua, right before the time Satan is going to open his mouth and unleash hell upon Joshua, a voice speaks. The moment Joshua begins to speak, the judge speaks. And what he says is jaw-dropping. Look at verse 2, if you would. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Did you feel the weight of that? Before Satan can accuse Joshua, the judge of all the earth, before Satan even speaks, the judge of all the earth says, I rebuke you. I rebuke you, Satan. Instead of a lengthy argument, instead of a debate between Satan and the Lord on whether Joshua is righteous or not, the Lord shuts Satan's mouth and he silences Satan with a rebuke. But I don't know about you, but this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make no possible sense. The writing is on the wall. Joshua is guilty. For once in Satan's life, he's right. Think about that. The father of lies, for once, he's right. I mean, if he brought his charge up against Joshua, Joshua should be declared guilty. There's no reason why Joshua should be acquitted of all charges. Except there's one reason. There's only one reason that Joshua can hang his hat on. Look at what verse 2 says. The Lord says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Notice, saints, that the Lord doesn't appeal to the great things Joshua has done in his past. He doesn't say that, well, Joshua is a good man and he's brought many great sacrifices to the tabernacle and he just has great potential. He doesn't appeal to nothing that Joshua is in and of himself. He doesn't look at Joshua's past. He doesn't look at Joshua's future, but rather the Lord appeals to his sovereign hand of election. Joshua is on his way to eternal damnation. Joshua is on his way to hell, saints. But the Lord says, I have plucked him from the fire. The Lord knows Joshua is guilty. That's the most striking thing of all of this. You think the Lord doesn't know that Joshua is not guilty? You think the Lord doesn't know that Joshua is not a sinner? 
He knows that Joshua should spend an eternity in hell. He knows that Joshua deserves his infinite wrath and punishment. But he also knows one thing that trumps it all. That is Joshua is his. Joshua is his chosen servant. Joshua is among the elect. And friends, when we think about our God in the gospel, isn't this the wonder of all wonders? I love to study Trinitarian theology. And I love to learn about the person of Christ. And I love to learn about who God is in and of himself. But saints, this might take the cake. This is the wonder of all wonders. Why God would choose to save those who deserve an infinite wrath and infinite punishment is utterly incomprehensible. Why would he choose to save me? The doctrine of election shouldn't be a controversial doctrine, although it is, but rather for us, it should be a doctrine that we confess and that we glory in. For it is the most glorious of all glorious doctrines. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. But isn't that also amazing? That the eternal one who doesn't have mood swings in his love, who doesn't change in his love, for his love for you doesn't heighten or doesn't lessen, that one chooses to set his perfect and infinite love upon those who can't love him the way that he loves us. Friends, when was the last time you pondered on this simple question? Why me? That's a question that I've been asking myself lately. Why? Oh, oh, so great love for me. I think about it in my own life. All of the people I have encountered and all of the relationships I have made and all of the places I have been, I'm no smarter than the people whom I grew up with. I'm no more, I'm no less of a sinner than the friends whom I used to hang out with. I did the same stuff. Why would the God of heaven and earth choose Little old me. And friends, the question that will be on our minds from now until all eternity is why me? When we get to the consummation of all things, I like to think when we have those glorified eyes and we get to see Christ for who he is and I get to see all of the wonderful people that I have have relationships with you and I get to see my auntie Virgie and I get to see my father and my grandfather. I get to see the wonderful life that I will live for all eternity. The one question I will have is why me? Why oh so great love to me? Now at this point, I have to admit that while I was studying, I had I planned on going through some reasons why God would choose some and not others and then try to relate that to why God would choose me and not others. But saints, in all honesty, no matter how you try to cut the cake, what are we really saying? What are we really saying when we speak about the doctrine of election? 
what are we really saying when we ask the question, why me? What answer can we give that is sufficient? Yes, we can say that God chooses us for his own glory. And we can say that it's for his own goodwill and pleasure to save in this way. But the question still remains, why me and not him? The question is still on the table. Why me? And why not my neighbor? We can't bring nothing to the table but our sin. We stand guilty of cosmic treason and deserve an eternity in hell. Yet the Lord says to Satan when he tries to accuse us, the Lord says to our own sick mind when we think that we are not saved, is, it, is this not a brand I have plucked from the fire? Are you not my chosen servant? Have I not snatched you out of the burning? Have I not covered you in my glorious grace? Has my son not died for you? Saints, we are all brands plucked from the fire. And quite honestly, I wear that. I wear that and I keep that down right here. And I pray that you do the very same thing. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed that you are a brand plucked from the fire. All of us are. And saints, I don't understand it. In fact, when the Apostle Paul, as he is trying to reconcile the doctrine of election and with reprobation and God's sovereign hand, and he gets to choose whom he chooses, and God has the right over the clay because he's the potter at Romans 11 or at the end of Romans 11, after he has given us this magisterial theology, all he's able to say is this, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's my answer when I try to ask, why me? It's always, oh, the depth. I can't explain it. But I do adore the God whom I'm speaking of. God in his rich mercy and kindness elects us in Christ, but salvation doesn't stop there. After the Lord rebukes Satan and declares that Joshua is his chosen servant, the Lord, he then shows himself off. And he takes things a step further. Look at verses 3 and 4, if you would. Now Joshua was, was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garment, and hear this. And the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. What glorious verse that is. Those same garments that were dripping with filth, the Lord says, take them off. The same garments that brought Joshua hell, eternal punishment, and the wrath of God, the Lord says, remove them. But notice, saints, 
that he doesn't tell Joshua to remove them. Did you catch that? He doesn't say, now Joshua, you remove your garments. But rather, he commands his servants to remove Joshua's garments. Now, what's the significance of that? It's simply this. Joshua, in and of himself, couldn't remove his garments. He was more than just covered in excrement and vomit. But he was covered in sin. And he could not, in and of himself, remove all of his sin from himself. He was not strong enough. He was not holy enough. He couldn't obey God enough to remove his own garments. And saints, once again, isn't this true of us? You couldn't obey God's law perfectly enough for you to remove your filthy garments. You couldn't go to church enough to remove your filthy garments. You couldn't live righteously enough for you to remove your filthy garments. But the good news of the gospel is this. That there was one who could. There was one. In spite of all others who tried. That could. And this one. Sin could not touch. This one. This lamb. This promised seed. Stood high and above. And far beyond the reach of the effects of the fall. This is the one, Christ, who finally stood up to the curse of Adam. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and hear me here, saints. He takes off our sinful garments by taking on himself sinful flesh. Or in other words, Jesus doesn't just remove our sinful garments, saints. And hear me now but he wears them on his back for us. He, he, when we th- he doesn't just take off Joshua's garments, set them aside, or even put them in the washer. He says, I will wear them. I will wear the filth and the shame and the sin. He doesn't throw them away. But he bore the scars of the fall on his holy, harmless, and undefiled body. Christ came in the likeness of sinful man. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. It is in his life where Jesus Christ lives a life of complete obedience to God's holy law. It is in his death where Jesus Christ takes the infinite debt that we owe to God upon himself. The sin that brought us hell, separation, and God's eternal anger, Christ takes into his body. He says, I will wear them. Jesus Christ pays for a debt that he did not owe and is punished for a sin that he did not commit. And I like to think of as the nails are being pierced through our Lord's hands and feet, it is our sin that is also being nailed to the cross. 
It's not just our Lord that's being pierced when those nails are driving through his hands and driving through his feet, but it is our sin that's also being pierced to that wooden stick. Christ takes our sinful garments and he doesn't just wash them clean, he throws them away. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. But this is also a time when we are to glory in the gospel because Jesus Christ doesn't just leave us naked. He doesn't take off Joshua's garments and Joshua just now stands there naked. But look at what the rest of verse 4 and 5 says. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the Lord, or and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The soiled sinner has now become the covered Christian. Jesus Christ takes our sinful garments and he gives to us his long, infinite, righteous robe. You see, saints, when Christ takes away our sinful garments, he doesn't just simply return us to a state of neutrality. As the Roman Catholics might believe that he takes us back to the starting position. As if we are Adam and he places us back into the garden, but yet we are still naked. But again, the glorious news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ takes our sinful garments and doesn't place us back into the garden while we try to earn eternal life, but rather he gives us his righteous robe. And on the account of that, he merits eternal life for each and every one of us. He gives us something better than Eden could ever offer. He gives to us himself. He gives to us his perfect obedience to God's law. He gives to us his perfect life, his perfect death, and infinite value. And he gives to us his glorious resurrection. Horatius Bonner, in his wonderful hymn, has summed this up beautifully. He says, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. (laughs) Martin Luther called this the great exchange. But I think the Apostle Paul sums it up the best when he says in Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saints, on the account of Christ alone, there is no charge that can stick to us. Not election, not what we have done in the past, but on Christ alone is my hope found. And because of Christ and him alone, there is no one that can accuse us. No Satan, no demon, no enemy, no friend, no family member. No one can accuse you. I love the hymn that we sing, When Satan tempts me to despair, 
and tells me of my guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Saints, when you are feeling doubt, look up. When you are feeling doubts, remember that Christ has taken away your sin by taking on your sin and giving to you his righteous life. In closing, saints, Joshua's story is our story. And I don't have three points of application based upon everything we have seen this morning I can't give you six ways that we are to live in light of this sermon. I trust that the Holy Spirit can do that. But what I will say is this. When was the last time that you were in awe of Jesus Christ? When was the last time when you were in awe of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? When was the last time you considered how great your sin is and how much greater a Savior Jesus Christ is? We learned a few weeks ago that the great question of the Old Testament is, where is the Lamb? Well, we found him this morning. What we find in Jesus Christ is that perfect spotless substitute who does more than just take us off of the stake and places himself upon the table to be sacrificed. He's more than just our substitute. But Jesus Christ is our eternal hope. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this morning you were reminded of these eternal truths. And that may God inflame our hearts for a love and knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray.